0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
1: On the morning of February 9th, 2012, a teenager disappeared on his way to work in Spanaway, Washington. He left behind no clues, no witnesses, and no answers for what would be two very long years. His own parents would have to turn into detectives to try and find him, because no one else would. This tragic and infuriating case will end with not one, but two shocking and senseless murders. This is Washed Away, a podcast that breathes new life into Washington State's coldest cases. I'm Ashley Smith, and on this episode, I'm covering the unsolved murder of Chris Ferdell.
2: Of justice for sure. With me working the case, it, it, it comes down to finally uh, the detective came to me and uh, asked me if I wouldn't mind, would I allow him to take copies of all my file and notes and all my leads and what I've been doing, he says, because we really don't got nothing to go by.
1: That's Paul Verdell, father of 18-year-old Chris. You'll also hear a little bit from Chris's mom, Melanie, on this episode. The Verdell family lived in Spanaway, Washington, which, if you're not familiar, is an unincorporated area just south of Tacoma. Christopher Dylan Verdell was born on June 22, 1993. He grew up to be 5'8", with shaggy brown hair and brown eyes. Almost every photo I've seen of him has the same sweet, shy smile. His parents couldn't say enough nice things about him.
2: Helicopters was his thing ever since he was a little baby, walking around, toddler. He he loved helicopters, and he wouldn't play with anybody unless they had a helicopter. It wasn't a car or a truck. And uh, as he grew up, it got even stronger, and he wanted to um, become a um, Coast Guard helicopter pilot.
1: Working out there
2: in the Bering Strait with uh, all the fishermen, he wanted to be. That's what he wanted to do. We watched it, him grow up and wanting that. And it wasn't until uh, he graduated and when he was 17, and he wanted to take a little bit of break off that summer, so he didn't enlist right away. But um, he was. He had good grades. There's one one thing about his schooling that we we just couldn't figure out. He didn't explain to us, or his teachers didn't. But he was failing PE, and I I was like, how, how can he fail PE? But we didn't find this out until after he had um, went missing, and um, some girl notified us and wrote wrote us a letter about him, and she actually took a seat and didn't participate in PE every day, so he could sit and keep this girl company. She was uh, handicapped and she couldn't do physical ed. So he would take an F every day to sit with her because everybody picked on her, teased her, and gave her a bad time. And she wrote us this letter and told us that he was the only thing that made her smile and he insisted to visit with her and, and be with her during PE. It all made sense then because he had graduated uh, in, in his graduating year. He uh, they made him take two PE periods in order for him to get the, enough points to graduate. He was a really, really good kid. Everybody loved him, and uh, he used to volunteer his summers. Over at the um, at the food market in uh, Puyallup. and uh, he used to carry groceries for customers that were down at the farmers, farmers market there. That was his passion: is volunteering and and giving. You know, and I never I never could tell him no. You know, he got to do everything he wanted to do, and uh, he was pretty responsible.
1: That PE story is so sweet, but it also has me concerned about whoever their teacher was. Maybe I'm ignorant to how things work in school these days, but couldn't they have found an activity that everyone could do together? Or why wouldn't the teacher tell the parents that he wasn't participating in class? Why would you fail him for doing something nice like that? I, I don't get it, but that's not really important to the case. What is important is what happened to Chris on February 9th, 2012. That would be the last day that his parents would see him.
3: So I remember that Thursday morning, like it was yesterday. And I normally was not awake with him in the morning. And usually my husband was, but I woke up that morning and it was really cold out. So I said, do you want some oatmeal, Chris? I'll make you some oatmeal before going out to work. And he said, yeah, so I made him some oatmeal. And he was rushing, you know, getting ready, rushing. He always waited till the last minute, and so he ate, and he was rushing out the door. And I hollered to him, I said, "Get your butt back here and give me and your dad a hug and kiss goodbye." And uh, he did, and then rushed out the door, and that's the last time.
2: Yeah, that morning, that morning, his his phone pretty much went dead uh, about 9:40.
3: He was stopping by a friend's house before going to work that morning because he loaned his friend's dad either a hundred or a couple hundred dollars to pay their power bill. And so they were paying him back that morning before he went to work. So he stopped by there and that's where the last time he was, he walked out of that kid's backyard and it was just minutes after that his phone went dead.
1: He was last seen wearing a black Safeway T-shirt. It's where he worked. Black Dickies pants and a fluorescent orange hunting jacket that he actually wore year-round. Did uh, Safeway call you and say that he didn't show up, or, or how did you find out that he didn't make it to work?
2: They didn't. They didn't call us, and so that's that's what upset me because they didn't call us to see if Chris was c- coming to work because it wasn't like him. He, was, he never missed a day's work.
1: Technically, Chris was an adult. He had turned 18. But to his parents, he was still just a kid. And they were understandably very worried when they hadn't heard from him all day. And even more so when they found out he never made it to work. These things are very out of character for Chris. He talked to his parents all the time, all day long, and he never missed work. At what point did everyone realize like, oh, he's really, really missing. Like something really bad has happened. Like he's nowhere to be found.
3: Later that night after, Chris always was hanging out with his oldest brother. And when we finally got in contact with his oldest brother and his older brother hadn't heard from him or seen him either, that's when we all pretty much knew, oh God, something's wrong. Yeah, something happened. I remember going out to the bus stop and just looking for like evidence of like a scuffle in the gravel or the dirt, you know, or anything like that. We were looking around and then we started searching the next morning.
2: Yeah, the my very, husband and I and very next morning we just started searching off like ten, twenty feet, thirty feet off the side of the road in case he got hit by a drunk driver or something.
3: It was 109 hours after we reported Chris missing before we finally spoke with a detective about it.
2: Yeah, they told us it would just be 48 hours, but yeah, you know, it wasn't for it took it took them quite a while to get to us.
1: Chris's parents told me that not only did it take an unusually long time to report Chris as a missing person, But the detectives pretty much refused to treat his disappearance as anything other than a runaway, something that we hear, unfortunately, a lot in cases like this one. When I say we, I mean you, me, everyone else who listens to true crime podcasts. Because of this, Paul and Melanie had to become their own detectives and search for their son at the same time that they were understandably devastated by his disappearance. Something no parents or loved ones should have to do they hired a canine unit to track chris's scent they interviewed the bus driver on the route that chris took to work every day they started a facebook page and a website with case information they put up flyers they talked to chris's friends they went above and beyond to try and find their kid and what they found was a surprising amount of violence in their neighborhood
2: because there was, there was some trouble in the neighborhood there in the community with gangs and, and uh, other students getting beat up, left for dead at bus stops. His best friend had his skull smashed in uh, by somebody who had punched him when he was sitting in his car. So there was trouble going on, you know, and, and we were trying to uh, keep Chris away from all the trouble. Yeah, and his friend got robbed, and they robbed him, so um, took took everything out of his pockets that they could that he had, and they ended up punching him, and it smashed his skull. And that was a, a, about three weeks, I would say, before Chris went missing. The parents, they didn't report it to the cops because they... I, I think it was just in fear of retaliation because uh, they didn't want... Um, any more trouble, so you know, and I figured that his his friend is marked I told chris, you know don't don't be taking any rides from him, you know, and don't don't be in his car, don't be seen in his car. I told him you know you just you're just gonna have to either ride the bus home or call me. I'll come pick you up from work and um tried to tried to avoid him. Being around that kid because uh, that kid was, they were after that kid. They got him, they got him more than once. Just the one time is when he got his head smashed in.
1: It's unclear if whoever attacked that kid had anything to do with Chris's disappearance, but it's definitely an odd coincidence, even if just by timing and location.
2: We tried getting him on the news and uh, the news stations kept turning us down, and they wouldn't. They,
3: on from they the couldn't. Yeah,
2: they couldn't report on it until it was released from the sheriff's department. And we were like, well, "What do you mean?" Well, they had him listed as a runaway for 14 months from the day he went missing, and they were trying to work the case and try, like they were going to pop open some big gang organized stuff you know with all the kids getting hurt in the area and um and we didn't know that we had no idea that they had listed him as a runaway and finally when the news station told us hey you know he's a runaway we don't report runaways that that I blew up I blew up big time
1: Unfortunately, with no one willing to come forward with information, no witnesses, no evidence, no clues, nothing, despite Paul and Melanie's greatest efforts, Chris remained missing for what felt like a lifetime to his family. In reality, it would be an excruciatingly long two years until February of 2014, when human remains were found that were thought to be Chris. But then, his family had to wait even longer before those remains could be tested and confirmed. That confirmation wouldn't come until September of 2014.
2: His, the guy that found him was, um, he was a he was pretty young uh, uh, gentleman he, himself, and uh, he had a hunting dog that was an old retired cougar hunting dog. Um, from Mexico and um, the dog was just really old in his last years you know and and retired and he didn't he didn't use him anymore to track and hunt but the dog just stayed on a chain in his in his older years and just relaxed and and didn't do nothing didn't get excited to do nothing or anything the guy said and, and for some reason that morning he said his dog just was upset about something and just was going on and on and on and on and he he had never acted like that before. And he said he just went on and on until he snapped his chain and then he just took off full speed running down the road and it was a dirt gravel road. It was it was about a a half a mile he said Um, and so he jumped in his truck to chase after the dog and he could see the chain drag marks in the gravel a road going down and then it it veered off into the woods and he called and he called and he called and he couldn't he couldn't get the dog to come out or anything and uh, couldn't get his attention so he went back home and grabbed his other dogs, his hunting dogs, and he let them track him into the woods. And uh, they ended up finding him, and the dog was just sitting down next to a log. And uh, the guy said he don't know what the problem was, maybe his chain was caught. So he, he unbuckled his chain from his, his collar, and he, he said uh, he started walking out. And it wasn't until halfway out of the woods there, he looked back and he didn't have his dog, his dog wasn't following him. So his dog wouldn't leave the spot next to the bog, the tree that was down and uh, wouldn't leave that spot. And he, he wanted to get his attention uh, onto it. And the guy said, you know, he looked three or four different times around, you know, and told him to come on and he just wouldn't, He just wouldn't get up and move. And uh, it wasn't until he looked at it again, and there was a big pile of trash out there, and people had thrown their trash. And uh, he said it wasn't until about the fifth time he glanced over there and then he seen a shirt and some pants.
1: The discovery of Chris's remains didn't bring closure to his parents, but They told the Nisqually Valley News at the time that it gave them a sense of finality. They could finally stop searching and they could finally lay their son to rest. They moved to California not too long after and did just that. I spoke to Paul and Melanie for close to two hours when recording this episode and they were, I'm not sure what the right word is, maybe relieved that someone wanted to know what happened to Chris. Like someone was asking questions and and curious why something like this would happen and and why no one had been held accountable. And I think that's because it's been clear from the moment that Chris went missing that for whatever reason, they were on their own. They of course had friends and family to lean on and even some nice volunteers to help them spread the word. But in terms of actually getting help and, and answers to what happened to their son, someone being held accountable for his murder, that seemed to always be out of reach. Look, I didn't talk to the detectives that were responsible for this case, so I don't know their side of it, but when I learned what happened to the main suspect in Chris's disappearance and murder, I couldn't help but be horrified, confused, and angry.
2: Michael Borkwin, um, we we believe that he was the one He was, I mean, it was like five, six months after uh, um, Chris went missing that we were getting reports of people on the street that knew Michael Borkwin and he was riddled in guilt. He
3: confessed, he
2: confessed confessed to a lady and and a couple of people and he was just riddled in guilt. They said he just was going crazy. And uh, uh, so he tried to turn himself in. And they didn't believe him.
1: Michael Borkwin, a 21-year-old man from Roy, Washington, became the prime suspect in Chris's murder after someone came forward to say that Michael had bragged about killing Chris. Allegedly, he told another man that he stabbed Chris twice and that he, or possibly other people, moved Chris's body at least once. Police eventually decided to bring Michael in for questioning and this was around the same time that chris's remains were found two years after his disappearance they issued a warrant for michael's arrest not for murder but for other crimes he had allegedly committed and they were going to use the opportunity of bringing him in for those things to ask him about chris unfortunately on february 1st 2014 the night the police went to find michael they killed him.
2: They, they were bringing him in on the two-year mark, and uh, they, by me, they were, they were bringing him in, and the detective told me, he says, well, they weren't, the, uh, our officers weren't supposed to shoot him, you know, and they ended up shooting him point blank, seven rounds.
1: According to the Borkwin versus Pierce County summary judgment that I found online, here's what happened. Michael Borkwin was the passenger in a truck with two others. Police pulled the truck over and asked Michael to exit the vehicle. They claim he was acting as though he was concealing a weapon and they attempted to restrain him once he was out of the truck. At that point, Michael allegedly sprayed the arresting officers with bear spray. One of the officers then pulled his gun, opened fire on Michael and shot him six times. The news of Michael Borgwin's death was obviously terrible for several reasons. One being, of course, that the prime suspect in Chris's murder was now also dead, leaving the possibility of any justice for Chris completely up in the air. And I know that justice is a tricky word. It can mean different things to different people. Our criminal justice system is incredibly flawed, and that's why. But for me, it's just... The idea of being able to take someone's life and no one ever having to answer for it to explain why and to be held accountable, however that may look.
3: What I believe is that Michael Borquin was dating Christopher's best friend, who was a female, and I think he was a jealous boyfriend. I believe that him and his buddies were gonna rob Chris that morning.
2: I don't think it was that morning that they were gonna rob it. It it might've been premeditated to beating him up and, and robbing him for what he had, but uh, nobody knew where he was that morning. And so he's out there on the street, standing at the bus stop, and they came around the corner. And I think that it just fell into their lap. Uh, having him right there not with all his friends and nobody around you know it just kind of it might have been pre premeditated for what they were going to do to Chris but I, I don't think that it was planned for that morning it just kind of
1: yeah.
2: it just kind of happened you know
1: so Chris did know Michael somewhat
3: somewhat
2: Michael Borgman yeah because he he was the, his best friend's Boyfriend and he had invited them up to the city on Friday Friday night to uh, to go to a rave up there. Chris had VIP tickets and he offered to pay for their way and everything. They just needed to get up there. And uh, her yeah, her new boyfriend was, was pretty jealous of Chris and there was no way he was gonna go and he 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 was arguing about it with his girlfriend and,
3: telling her not to and to
2: she girl. told him she told him that she was going with or without him because chris was her friend and uh he invited the, the both of them to go and he would pay their way and uh yeah it didn't happen
1: did you ever talk to chris's friend about this like did she think that her boyfriend could have done this
3: not at first,
2: but then, after a while she yeah, yeah, 'cause i I thought at first, I thought it was it was another boy that was her girl that it was her boyfriend, and I thought it was him, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's no way the kid doesn't seem like the type, you know, but then when we spoke to her she had said that they broke up and she's got a new boyfriend now and that's who Chris invited to go up to the rave up in Seattle and uh she said that he 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 refuses to go and he he won't let me go but I'm going anyways she said and
3: uh, yeah and then after Chris was missing every time that she would mention that she's going to come by and say hi to Chris's mom and dad or whatever he would get upset and And start, you know, like verbally abusing her about not coming over our house, not coming to check in with us or to say hi or anything like that. And that's what made her start feeling like maybe he had something to do with it.
1: After years of receiving tips and hearing rumors, Paul and Melanie have a pretty good idea of what they think happened to their son, though they may never know for sure who decided to kill Chris and why. It all seems so tragic and senseless to me. What could the motive have been? Was it robbery and it escalated? Or was it jealousy because Michael's girlfriend was friends with Chris if Michael did in fact do this? Or was it sheer boredom, I I guess? I mean, this case has completely infuriated me. Not just because of what happened to Chris Verdell, but how his parents were treated during the investigation or lack thereof. And the fact that the prime suspect was murdered by police is just unbelievable, but obviously not uncommon. It's just been a mess. The only glimmer of hope in Chris's murder case is that witnesses have since come forward and claimed that at least three other people were present for Chris's murder. So even if Michael Borkwin did do it, That means other people were there. They could have participated. They could have watched. They might know more than they're letting on. I don't know if these people have come forward. I don't know if they've been named. I don't know if the police have that information. And that's where you come in. If you know anything about the murder of Christopher Burdell in Spanaway in 2012, please call the Pierce County Sheriff's Office at 253 798 7530. Or you can submit an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers at 253-591-5959. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production with music by I Speak Waves and Joe Prestone and artwork by Shane Long. It's hosted by me, Ashley Smith. I'm also the producer, editor, and everything else of this podcast, meaning Washed Away is a one-woman show. You can support my work by leaving a five-star rating or review wherever you listen and by sharing these episodes on social media. Speaking of, follow Washed Away on Twitter and Instagram at washedawaypod To see show notes and sources for each episode, visit washedawaypodcast.com. And yes, you can send in case suggestions. Email me, washedawaypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, especially through the credits. I'll have another episode ready for you very soon.
0: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement.